Hey, hey, and welcome back to the Liberty Dispatch, broadcasting across enemy lines into the Canadian culture. Thanks again so much for joining us on today's episode. We just want to remind you that all our podcasts are brought to you through the partnership of Christian Week with the Liberty Coalition Canada. For all things LCC, go over to our website, libertycoalitioncanada.com. Come check out everything that we have going over there. If you want to uh, check us out, uh, get us on demand, you can get us at the flfnetwork.com and that you can also get us on their fancy new app. Uh, it's just been recently updated. It's wicked cool. So if you haven't updated your app, do that at the store and we will slowly migrate all our content onto that new app. Uh, we suggest that you go over there and check that out. And if you appreciate our content and you want to help support it, go over to libertycoalitioncanada.com slash donate scan that health helpful qr code at the bottom of the page that will ensure that you get over there lickety split and uh while you're over there click on the analysis and shows tab to uh get a leave a uh, tax refundable donation to support our media arm here with lcc before we get into the show i just want to highlight two events that are coming up um it's like actually total of three but one's a two-day event um happening in october so october 23rd october 24th we are coming to southern ontario it'll be me andrew mike tim all the liberty podcast hosts doing a live podcast one on the 23rd from trinity bible chapel in waterloo we'll we'll be doing a dispatch and we'll be having a great time with the crowd there and also we're the next day at the trinity bible church in burlington ontario so we really look forward to seeing you go over to our website, you can check out uh, the two-day event there. We have an event bright page. We'll be reminding you by our email, so get on our email list. But that's a two-night two event, October 23rd and 24th. We are looking forward to seeing you, and we hope that you come with a generous heart to help support the content that we're doing so we can continue to push back against mainstream media lies. And also, we have an event uh, in the United States of America. It's going to be pretty cool. It's uh, the Spark Con conference event equipping training uh, and training to stand up for christ uh it's at mount pleasant south carolina october 31st through november 1st it's with our friends joe boot uh dr michael Thiessen is obviously there um nate wright and our chief litigator here with lcc james kitchen and more so you're definitely not not going to want to miss that do yourself a favor and check that out now before we get into the content for today i just just want to highlight for you that this is an old conversation that we had with one Bruce Party. I know you know him. He's been on the show a few times. He is a wonderful man. And actually, the genesis of this con uh, conversation took place after one, our last episode that we did with Bruce. We ended up staying on uh, online with him for about an hour or more, talking about kind of what's gone into Canada's legal revolution. So we wanted to record that this time for our listeners and kind of unpack it because I think it really helps explain where we are in our nation as it pertains to what we've seen 
go on through COVID and then also following up on that, how a lot of the courts have really provided such great deference to the state and how that's been long in the making in Canada's legal situation. So we think this will be, though it's going to be very theoretical, though it's going to be very technical at times, we think it's very practical in the sense it will explain a lot of what's going on. So we really, really do hope that you do enjoy our conversation that we had with law professor Bruce Party. Enjoy. Well, friends, we are pleased to have with us on the dispatch once again. We didn't scare him away too much. He has joined us again, and we are looking forward to a tremendous discussion with Bruce Party. Bruce is the executive director of Rights Probe, rightsprobe.org, and a professor of law at Queen's University here in my town, Kingston. He is a critic of legal progressivism and the illiberal managerial state. We talked about that a lot last time he was with us on the show. He warned of dire consequences as soon as COVID lockdowns were imposed in the spring of 2020. He is one of the authors of the Free North Declaration, a call to arms to protect civil liberties from COVID irrationality and overreach. He has written on a range of subjects at the front lines of the culture war inside the law, including human rights and freedoms and free speech. He has taught at law schools in Canada, the United States and New Zealand, practiced civil litigation, served as adjudicator and mediator on the Ontario Environmental Review Tribunal, and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Bruce, we are very pleased to have you again. Thank you for joining us on the Liberty Dispatch. Very pleased to be here. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. We're, we're going to try to make sure that all of that concentrated <laughs> goodness that we didn't record last time, I think we're going to keep the record button going and make sure that we capture that mm-hmm. uh, because that was uh, that was good stuff. So, Bruce, the reason why Matt and I wanted to have you on The Dispatch is we want to talk about Canada for a bit. So I'm going to set the stage. I'm going to I'm going to put all the pieces in place so that we can survey what's going on here. We know that our prime minister invoked the War Measures Act without justification. uh, And despite the rather, I think, damning evidence that's coming out of the public inquiry, there are many people who doubt that there's going to be any actual ramifications for that invoking that come out of this Mm -hmm. to my knowledge every pastor in canada who has brought a charter challenge before the courts has been told one of two things either a your charter rights weren't violated by arresting you and locking the doors of your church and telling you you can't meet and finding you or your charter rights were violated But given Section 1, it was a justifiable violation of your charter rights. Very recently, and Matt and I covered this on one of our last episodes, an Alberta woman, she was denied a life-saving organ transplant because of her vaccination status, and she had her denial affirmed through the Superior Court in Alberta. This was her appeal. It was denied again. And in Ontario very recently... There was an education strike that was potentially averted by the premier threatening to invoke the notwithstanding clause and all of the legal issues surrounding that. So that's (laughs) that's the chessboard. So here's the question, Bruce, what's going on in Canada right now? I know that's vague. 
and we have time. But what is what's happening in Canada right now? What, what does all of this mean when we put it together? Uh, very good question. And it's a very long answer, but let me make it short to start with anyway. So there has been a kind of revolution. It's been slow moving. It's happened over a period of decades, but it is essentially almost complete. It's the transformation of a liberal democracy into a progressive administrative state. And that means that you have a culture that believes, fundamentally believes in the, 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 the role, the duty, the legitimacy of government essentially to run the show, to make policies, to give directives, to, to, to uh, manage people to their best outcomes. At least that's what they would say. And that belief is apparently now held by government itself, uh, by legislatures, largely by courts, and frankly, by, by, by the people. Not all the people, but a significant portion of the people, as we saw during COVID, um, endorsed and encouraged governments to, to direct them, to lock them down, to tell them to wear masks or not, to tell them to be vaccinated or not. Um, this, 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 is, this is not a case of, you know, sometimes people say, well, we're now in a dictatorship. Well, dictatorships are usually characterized by somebody grabbing power against the wishes of the populace. That's not what's happened. What's happened here is that we have, the culture has changed. It's, it's, it's evolved. It, it has been captured by an ideology. And that ideology is, is not the ideology of, of Western liberal democracy. It's the ideology of, of, of progressive managerialism, if I can put it that way. So sometimes people say that we are in a kind of dictatorship now, but a dictatorship usually means that somebody has seized power against the wishes of the populace. And that's not the situation that we're in. Instead, what has happened is we've had a, 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 a gradual uh, evolution, if you like, or erosion or capturing of the prevailing ideology of the country from one of Western liberal democracy into a, a kind of a progressive, coercive managerialism. And, and that that is that is the central problem. All our institutions have bought into that idea. A lot of the people have bought into that idea, and and that is a that is a substantially different kind of 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 foundation for a country than the one a lot of us thought that we had. So, would you say a little more Brave New World and a little less 1984? Do you think that would be well, a, a, a fair good kind of assessment? Of those two Yes, well, of course. Yeah, right. Right. So it's both. Say. But if, where yeah. would it be? Right? Is it is it a fifty fifty, or do you think it's more of the um, by withholding the pleasures and the comforts, and less of the will lock you up? Um, is it you know in that spectrum? Is it maybe a little maybe a sixty forty split kind of deal where it's not quite so hard totalitarianism yet? It's more of a softer one. Well, perhaps we can put it this way: for those. 
for those who fundamentally agree or have gone along, it's brave new worldish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for those who do not, it's nineteen eighty four. Because we've seen that we've seen that during COVID. If you if you're not with the program, well then this is a coercive thing. You know, you 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 will do this or you get fired, you will do this or you won't fly, you'll do this or there are consequences. That's been the line, right? That's been the line that's 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 that they've used to avoid charter problems. It's, it's not coercive, but it is coercive in the sense that you can have a choice and the choice carries consequences. But if you're on board with this and you think it's all hunky-dory, then it's very much a Brave New World situation because you've been maybe conditioned to accept the the, the path that we're on. You do so cheerfully and and enthusiastically and uh, everybody's everybody's fine. And that's that's sort of the the, mm -hmm. the the brave new world version of this, yes. Yeah, it, almost in the inverse, where people are looking to the government to be daddy, right? Exactly to, so. To right. to provide for them in in the same way we see to the towards the demise of uh, the Roman Empire, people were okay with the emperor arresting and taking uh, unbelievable powers unto himself as long he as he was providing them safety from external threats mm -hmm. and giving them uh, food and circuses. So the people that that became decadent and comfortable. They said, government will give you all the power you want as long as you give us what we want in return. And the problem is, is that is absolutely contrary to the fundamental principles that founded not only Canada, but places like the United States as well. It's contrary to, as you said, uh, Bruce, that liberal democracy that, that we've come that has led to the actually the greatest flourishing in human history, right? Right. Um, so, so that's what you're talking about. It's a fundamental revolution that has taken place in our culture, and it's been so ongoing now that um, it's seeped down into the. It's it's supported by the public, sadly, and then um, it's it's enforced by our government officials over us. So. That cultural revolution, as you're saying, is is essentially complete in Canada, and that's why those of us who look to Canada's founding docu documents, those who believe in you know the supremacy of God and higher law and what that has meant throughout the history of Western civilization, that's why we're left spinning our heads <laughs> throughout uh, what's been going on. So, Bruce, depending on who you speak to, different people will point to different moments in history where they will say this erosion began. You know, some people will say shortly after the First and Second World War, we begin to see significant cultural shifts. I think there's there's validity there. Other people will say when we look at the uh, the infiltration of people from the Frankfurt School in uh, Berkeley and Columbia in the United States in the 60s and how they basically begin the process of taking over academia, right? So people will look at, I mean, you know, the, the Marxism and the neo-Marxism, really the Gramscian cultural Marxism is a late 19th century, early 20th century. So all these different points that people could say, here's where it started or here's where it really takes root. So maybe for our Canadian purposes, where would you say that this actual erosion begins in a pronounced way where we can point to a moment and say, this is this is where the seed is planted that now, as you would say, it's 
full bloom and the fruit on the tree is rotten fruit. Where was that seed? Boy, that's a, that's a big question. And I, I completely agree (laughs) with you that there are a lot of threads here and it's very difficult to pull the the thing apart. So as to identify a a singular cause. Um, So I'm not going to even try that, but I agree with you that critical theory is a big piece of this. Uh, I agree that, um, that, 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 Growing government's role in 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 the twentieth century, you know, after the during and after the depression, uh, the role of the two world wars. Um, but one moment that I like to focus on, and this is not to say that this is the one that counts and the others don't, not at all. But ironically, the moment where where the uh, charter was put into place is a key one for our country because what what you might expect to happen which is individual rights and freedoms uh, are put on a on a higher um pedestal than they were before even in, in the long run it's almost turned out to be the reverse and that's counterintuitive because you know the the the, the rights and freedoms that sort of people always thought that they had anyway were suddenly written down in a constitutional document and therefore, you'd think, well, that means they're even more important than they were before. But what seems to have happened is that you write those things down on a piece of paper, which is part of the Constitution. You include in that piece of paper a, a, a limitation on those rights, wherein you, it, it legitimizes the encroachment of those rights in the name of a pressing government objective. And suddenly what you've done is legitimized putting those kinds of rights aside in the name of common good. And then you put that together over time with with courts and especially the Supreme Court of Canada that has been determined to to um, facilitate the needs of the administrative state. And, And to give some rights expansive readings at certain moments when they are in in um when they're consistent with a progressive point of view and not in other moments when they might not be. And so you end up where we are now with COVID. I mean, COVID, COVID seemed to come out of the blue, right? It seemed to change the country. Suddenly we were on different ground and like, as in like what just happened. And, and it, it did of course, in, in many ways, but it's also the culmination of a whole lot of these factors, the charter, the critical theory, the administrative state that's grown over a long period of time, and all these things came together. It was a perfect storm, a perfect moment for the state to say, you know what, people, we're in charge. You need us right now. Here's what you're all going to do in the name of your own safety. And mm-hmm. people, people bought it. It's funny you bring up the, yeah, uh, and- the, the that, that culmination. Uh, Vody Bauckham, who's a pastor, wrote a book called Fault Lines, and he specifically talks about critical theory in the evangelical right. world and how all of this stuff, like these fault lines were there under the surface. We didn't see them. And then all of a sudden it just takes a few, a few trigger incidents, a few actual catastrophic mm. events, whether it's the death of George Floyd or the shooting of Michael Brown, that all of a sudden these fault lines are now yep. exposed. And so you're, you're, you're right. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm actually quite glad that you brought up the charter because one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, was that a weak point 
in the history of Canada. And Joe Boot, who is the founder of the Ezra Institute, is a friend of Liberty Coalition Canada. His position is that the charter is itself an inferior document compared to the long history of mm-hmm. British common law that really affirms all those rights anyways, but it doesn't have the limitations and it doesn't have the section one that allows the trampling of the rights. And his position is that the introduction of the charter actually made Canada worse off and ended up becoming a greater limitation on freedoms as opposed to what was in in place before. Now, that may not necessarily be your position articulated the same way, but what you're you're saying, I think Joe would agree, and I think we would agree as well, that the introduction Mm -hmm. of the charter doesn't now enshrine and protect the rights and freedoms of Canadians in greater measure because of the effect it has on the growth of the managerial state and the tremendous power it gives the government to override, it actually might be the beginning of the lessening of freedoms and rights Mm -hmm. and liberties because of the way the document itself is crafted. Yeah, yeah, because the limitations clause basically acts as a club that the government gets to wield and say, lest you be too zealous for your rights, just remember we have this limitations clause so we can use it to stop you from zealously, you know, uh, protecting and fighting for your supposed fundamental rights and freedoms. And the limitations clause itself is is pretty vague law. Now, there has been standards that have put forth for its proper use, but it's it's vague enough that the governments can use it as a threat. Am I Uh, not right there, uh, Bruce? Quite true, but I would put the 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 real effect of the charter so you keep this in mind those rights and freedoms that everybody sort of thought that they had before the charter even were not constitutionally entrenched so that if a legislature came along and said what well today we're taking away your property or today we're infringing your speech i mean constitutionally they were able to do that it's just that that was no, I mean, and it did happen. It did happen on occasion, but it wasn't the prevailing, I would say it wasn't the prevailing ethos of the country, right? And and during this time before the charter, I mean, Mr. Justice Lafore, who was later uh, a member of the uh, Supreme Court of Canada, uh, he, he wrote a piece shortly after the charter was put in place. And he made the observation that in the pre-charter era, uh, the, the, the courts were essentially the defenders of liberty. He, he, if I can put, just read a very short clip from, from that piece, he said, the courts are vigilant in reminding parliament and the legislatures of the basic political understandings underlying our parliamentary democracy. The English Revolution was not intended to replace a personal despot by a legislative despot. The authors of our system of parliamentary democracy were actuated by a philosophy of individual freedom, a philosophy that continues to inform our fundamental political institutions. In other words, he's saying the courts are there to remind the legislatures and the governments that one of our fundamental political values is individual liberty. And when governments try to encroach upon these rights, even though they are constitutionally perhaps able to do so, the courts will interpret their 
pieces of legislation and so on through the lens of of identifying individual liberty as as sort of the, the first the, the first political value and so to hold legislatures and governments to to a very high standard of specificity when they want to encroach upon those freedoms but but that that only works for as long as your courts believe in that value yeah yeah, that's 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 really interesting to hear those words, because essentially what's being said is so we didn't have a written constitution. I do believe in the power of written constitutions because, you know, we're, we're Christians. We believe in the power of the written word. We believe in pro proper hermeneutical practices, not eisegesis but exegesis taking from a text the meaning it given its normal context all those things are absolutely fundamental mm -hmm. to our world and life view but what you're saying is even without a, a written constitution the british tradition and values were so deep rooted in a society that the courts would zealously defend people's rights that even weren't uh, codified right. in a written document but even but now because of the court philosophy changing and not being that bulwark of zealously protecting people's rights even something that's written down cannot exactly protect so people's exactly freedoms. so let's put, let's put it in those terms writing something down on a piece of paper is not going to protect that which the culture does not believe in it's just not going to happen so when the shift when, when do we see the shift in the courts i mean is it is it simply a matter of the same prime minister who signs off on the charter who clearly has a particular socialistic bent to him and and is enamored with particular world leaders that love gaining more power unto themselves is it that he is the one that is appointing judges and justices that that, that agree that are like-minded at the same time as he puts this charter in place which gives them uh, more power to be able to hold in check or is it like is, is it that intentional or is it just the nature of as these worldviews and ideologies have been creeping into the academy which naturally means into law schools and more and more people just grow up in this it is naturally the case that fruit that grows in the poison hmm. soil produces poison fruit. If you read much of the charter, the, the, the rights and freedoms themselves, they read like a roster of individual rights, individual negative rights. Uh, and, and as far as I'm concerned, that's the way they were conceived, at least by the group that was putting them in place. And the, the, the two exceptions, if you like, to those rights and freedoms, both Section 1 and Section 33, the notwithstanding clause. Uh, my understanding of the history is that, that, that the diversion of Section 1 that we have and, and the inclusion of Section 33 was at least in part at the behest of certain provinces who still wanted the ability to legislate and govern without being prevented by the Charter. Yeah, they wouldn't sign off on it. They wouldn't agree with the charter as is without these without these That's additional right. measures. And so, in a way, you can yeah. say, well, that that undermines the, the 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 supremacy of those individual rights and freedoms. But but 
of course, we're not taking into account in that statement the 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 funny way that the courts have interpreted the charter since that time. And it turns out, in my mind and the mind of some other people, that Section 33, instead of instead of primarily threatening the 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 autonomy rights of individuals, is the last vestige of legislative supremacy. The the system that we had before the charter came into place. And you know, I'm I'm no fan of a lot of things that legislatures do. I'm I'm really not. They do a lot of silly, stupid you know, Ill, illiberal things. Uh, but the courts, and especially the Supreme Court of Canada over this period of time, has have really, well, as far as I would, I would say that they have, they have overreached in their role in, in, in refashioning the charter in, in its own image. They have, they have taken what appears to be a roster of, of, of individual rights and freedoms and, not entirely. This is all very slowly done and bit by bit, and it's not it's not a complete um, completed thing. But but sort of reinterpreting it as a as a progressive blueprint for the premacy of of collective values and common good, which is, as far as I'm concerned, not what was intended at all. So if right, yes, absolutely. And and on, on contrary yeah. to those negative rights that you talk about, like it's the spirit is total. It might be subtle. It might seem subtle, but the spirit is totally contrary to protecting those negative rights because positive and negative rights can't really coincide b beside each other because they positive rights expect something of someone um, that would violate those most basic negative rights that have been understood well, right, but, for but, a but long before time. Before we go on, though, so let's just, let's this just living this though so so oh, yes. that that line has not yeah. completely been crossed yet i mean so you can you can point to places where a positive right has sort of been found like for example in section 2d uh, you know a, a right to um a regime of collecting a collective bargaining which entitles you to legislation that provides for that kind of process but that that line hasn't hold us bull has been crossed in other words the, the court has not yet found that there is, for example, a positive right to housing in Section Seven, or a right to welfare, or or or. Well, right now, now the the court has said, the court has said, and this reflects their living tree approach to interpreting the Constitution. They have said, well, Section Seven, for example, does not yet include, does not include right now positive rights, but someday, you know, maybe maybe it will. Well, that means that you're just making it up as you go. Which has basically been been the prevailing approach. So this shift in the courts, no, the no. shift from the yeah. seeing it as a living tree, a living document to be made in their own image, mm. is this something that we see the the genesis of it right when the charter comes into play, or do we see maybe you know a decade of them? interpreting it and applying it correctly and then the shift or is it is it right there well, from the beginning it's not it's not made up brand new then but so so the the mm -hmm. living tree comes from the person's case but except that it doesn't mm -hmm. right so the the the, the person's case mm -hmm. is the is the excuse and the explanation for having the living tree it 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 created no mm -hmm. such thing at all if you read actually read the person's case this is the case that, yeah, what is the person's case? Give our audience a, a, a brief a right. Brief so, synopsis. so the person's case is a is a is a case in the Privy Council, which was at the time the highest court 
uh, dealing with Canadian cases uh, in the UK. And it, it dealt with the um, whether or not women were eligible for appointment to the Senate. And the word in the Constitution that was in question was persons. And the question for the court was, well, what does persons mean? Does it mean just men? Or does it mean men and women? And there's, they didn't take a living tree approach. They didn't say, well, you know, we should adjust the meaning of words in the Constitution so as to provide for, you know, new situations and yada, yada, yada. They said persons has a definition. If they'd met men only, they would have said men because men is used in other parts of the Constitution. So persons must mean people and people are men and women. Therefore, persons includes women. Therefore, women are otherwise eligible for appointment to the Senate. It's a, it's a straight, it's a straight up statutory interpretation case. Nothing extraordinary, nothing ordinary, nothing, nothing to be, nothing objectionable. It makes, it makes perfect sense. It's the way it was drafted. Uh, you don't have to go reaching for it. And yet there's a, there's a phrase in there, perhaps a, sloppy phrase it wasn't necessary to the decision it uses it uses the phrase you know canada is a living tree and that's been seized upon and instead they've suggested that it meant that the constitution is a living tree which can change over time be reinterpreted in in accordance with new social circumstances and so on and it's become the prevailing school of thought in terms of how constitutions should be interpreted, but the original case meant no such thing. So that essentially means our now, Supreme Court is full of activist judges. Yes. Well, yes. And again, I should qual yeah. I should qualify that. Yeah. I mean, not all well, of them are, by, by no means. Sorry. But we, yes. but we have yeah. had activist Supreme Court mm -hmm. judges. Yes. Yes. Correct. Well, because so, yeah, I want to I want to what is the so if the constitution is a, indeed a living document what are the political ramifications of that because i think th this might seem really abstract to our a lot of uh, listeners and it doesn't really land and in their like living rooms but how has this approach to the constitution from the courts led us to what i would consider a constitutional crisis i you made a good point before we were talking off off air whether it, that would be your perspective but how has it led us to this moment that shift in the court's um view of how to read law and interpret law how has that brought forth the revolution into and maybe full with bloom? a good example too right like i think in the united states i think about the whole mm. way of legislation the whole roe v wade decision was their approach to the the constitution was it's a, it's a living document and therefore the right to privacy is you can't which it's nonsense it's utter nonsense Emanating right, the from penumbras, the, the penumbras spirit, right? So of, we, we yeah, we're all well acquainted yeah. with American yeah. examples right. of that. Yeah. But maybe mm -hmm. maybe give us a, a a particular a particularly poignant Canadian example of how this has happened in a way that our audience could say, "Oh man, that really does affect me," or "That could affect me," or "It has right. affected right. me." Right. And your American example is a good one because it makes the point mm -hmm. that that this phenomenon is not unique to Canada. I mean, the U.S. has experienced it as well, perhaps not quite so acutely. 
ironically because in the US you actually do have more of a split. You actually have sort of two schools of thought struggling against each other, whereas in Canada, again, not everybody's on the same page, but for the most part, we have a prevailing progressive view about how the Constitution should be interpreted, and that includes the living tree idea. So a couple of examples of the way things change over time, and this is all a an expression, a reflection of the idea of judicial supremacy. So you'll see in in uh, in the Canadian uh, situation, you'll have a uh, so let's talk about the uh, this the issue of medical assistance in dying. Okay, you have a case that decides from the Supreme Court of Canada that uh, the prohibition against medically assisted suicide is constitutional. It does not infringe the charter. And then. Many years later, you have another decision on the same issue, different case, same issue, where the where the court basically says, well, times have changed. And now the Constitution means that that prohibition does infringe your charter right. Now, I'm not taking issue on the substance in terms of which of those two answers is right. But the point of the matter is that you have a completely diametrically opposed result in two, which were essentially identical cases on the, on material facts, one says yes, and one says no. Um, another another one of my favorite examples of the way that the courts have 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 taken the charter as their own is the way that Section fifteen has been interpreted. Section fifteen one is the section that basically says every individual has the right to be to be equal treatment under the law. In other words, at least this is my reading, the words say that the same rules and standards must be applied to everybody without regard to who you are. It's a, it's a blind justice section. And then you have an exception in 15.2 that says, oh, by the way, you know, if the government has a, a they don't use the words affirmative action, but it basically means an, an affirmative action program designed to specifically uh, to to alleviate historical disadvantage, where we're going to say that that doesn't violate fifteen one. So fifteen one is equal protection, equal treatment under the law, and section fifteen two is an exception in particular circumstances for substantive equality. Yeah, correct, correct, correct. And what has happened over time? is that the Supreme Court of Canada has said, well, actually, you know, 15.1 is also a section that requires substantive equality. That is discrimination. That is equality of outcome. Therefore, actually, you don't have, you do not have the constitutional right to equal treatment under the law. I don't think that's what the words say. But over the past few decades, since the charter was put in place, essentially since since the first major case under Section 15.1, Supreme Court of Canada said 15.1 as well as 15.2 requires substantive equality. And the best, most recent example of this is a, a case called Fraser, just a couple of years ago or so, about the RCMP's job sharing program. RCMP put in a job sharing program wherein Full-timers could combine and, and, and 
undertake a full-time job together so that they could work part-time. They want to provide flexibility. If you wanted not a full-time job, but instead of just a part-time job, it was available to you. It was available to everybody. All the full-time members of the RCMP could have could elect voluntarily to become part of this program. And as part of the program, they also uh, put in place a pension plan that would pay a pension on the same basic premise as the full-time pension, which was your pension will reflect the number of hours that you work. Now, what actually happened was more women than men voluntarily decided to enroll in the job sharing program. And therefore, at the end of their careers, more women than men ended up with the lower pension because they worked less hours as part-timers. And I'll say, before you conclude, I'll say, just to, yeah. to set it up, that's fairly consistent in the labor force more sure. generally. That when we look at numbers statistically, mm -hmm. the reality is for various reasons, whether it's because of having children or simply because of more valuing family, vacation, generally speaking, in the labor force, you will have more women occupying part-time positions than men and working less hours on average than men. So that's fairly consistent. That's not controversial right. at Correct. all. And, and on this basis, the Supreme Court of Canada said that the program violated Section 15.1 of the, of the Charter. In other words, this program, open to everybody, regardless of who you are, is unconstitutional because it is open to everybody on an equal basis. Because the outcome is not equal between groups, not equal between men and women. And therefore, you are not allowed, you are not allowed to have such a program that applies equally to everybody on a voluntary basis. Now, would they have said it wouldn't have been a problem mm. if at the end of the day, everyone received the same pension? Would that have been a would that have been a, an end result that would have made them say, "Well, that, now we're fine with the program as long as the end result is everyone gets the same amount on I'd the back to, end." Would that I'd have, have been to acceptable? speculate, but based upon the the way the decision the, the majority decision is worded, I would guess that that would probably be so. Yes. So what what matters is not equality under the law, Correct. but equality Correct. of outcomes. Essentially, Correct. is is what Correct. what you're saying. Wow. Yeah, I didn't even know the. the the depth of the legal insanity of our country but but the, i mean that that is pretty that is pretty stark and pretty pretty sad um you'll 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 note how long this has been in development from the courts i mean this is this is over a course of almost 40 years since the charter was put in place this isn't happened yesterday it didn't happen 2 years ago it didn't start with covid this has been the the path that we've been on in the courts and in the constitution with the constitution for a long time. And so I know a lot of this seems sudden, but it, it really isn't. Yeah, no, exactly. We, we are at, at the end of the tip of this, of, of the spear that has been in place for even well, well before even the charter existed in Canada, where, where we're talking about the progressive era and, and a lot of where these ideas right. find their Genesis. And, and that's the thing that, um, you mentioned the states. What's different about the states? Well, they actually have a, a well-established originalist tradition where people are fighting for that kind of view of legal interpretation. 
and it seems in Canada we don't have that. There's there, there's very few representatives of that originalist point of view. Yep. So I like, do you know yep. the genesis and the history of why that's the case in Canada? Well, um, well, first of all, of course, our Charter of Rights is is a much much yes. younger document than the Bill of Rights. But let's let's just qualify something for a moment. So one of the ironies during COVID has been that the the competing arguments about how the charter should be interpreted took at least a temporary flip-flop. So it's it's not just that the court uh, the Supreme Court of Canada um, primarily has interpreted the charter in a particular way. It has done so when it suited them. And so when, so, so, right. Okay. So the, the argument that, that has been made over a period of time, well, you know, by people like me and many others has been, look, you should apply the text of the document, not the living tree idea. You shouldn't sort of make stuff up. You should apply what it says. And back to 15.1, you should, you should apply the words of 15.1 because 15.1 describe a right to equal treatment under the law, not equal outcome. That's that's the way I read those Which words. Which has long been understood in, and, in the in the British common law tradition. Like that's absolutely irrefutable as far as the, right. uh, the historical. And, understanding. and we've also said, yeah, sure. And we've also said, you know, the charter should be interpreted as a document that provides for negative mm -hmm. freedoms rather than yeah. positive ones. Right. Is, COVID Bruce, sorry, it's, sorry COVID to stop along, you. Right? Is is that explicitly yeah, sure. yeah. laid out somewhere? Um, the, the how. Not in the Constitution okay, but itself, but that's no. just the tradition of the interpretation. Well, yes. Yeah, so the traditional interpretation, the, the 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 traditional principles of statutory interpretation are, I mean, there are, and there are many. There's a whole long list of them. But but among um, at the top of the list is, you know, what does the statute say? What 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 what's the plain meaning of the word in the provision? Because the words reflect the will of the legislature. And, and this goes back to the to, to the fundamental division of powers, sorry, separation of powers between legislatures and and courts. The legislatures have a role, and their role is to is to set out what the principles of law are supposed to be in the legislation that they pass. Now, courts often also have a role in the common law, but but legislatures have the power even to displace common law rules if they do so in a statute. And, and when there is a statute, the courts are supposed to apply the law that they're given rather than go and sort of effectively amend what the legislature has decided. That's a very long-standing idea, right? COVID, yeah. So COVID comes along. And those people who think that these COVID measures, whether it be lockdowns or masking or vaccine mandates, are are infringements of their civil liberties, and they are, are also violations of their charter rights. And the problem is that they were done in a way that makes that not quite so obvious. So here's a moment in which the administrative state has managed, arguably, to do things indirectly in a way they would not have been able to do them directly. So with respect to vaccine mandates, for example, if governments had passed a statute that said 
everybody will get vaccinated. And if you don't get vaccinated, we will fine you or we'll throw you in prison. Okay, well, that's probably going to be a violation of Section 7, security of the person. Okay, but they didn't do that. Instead, the line was, oh, well, you know, we're going to have passports. And in order to go to a restaurant or to fly on a plane or, or, or so on, then you're going to need to show proof of vaccination. But by the way, it's your choice. It's just that your choice carries consequences. Right. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't necessitate by plane, right? That's the privilege. So we're not going to infringe on your right to walk from Ontario to BC. You can still travel freely, but we'll just withhold the plane and the that's train right. and here's, because that's really a privilege. Yes. That's an extra. And this, and here's the flip-flop. This is the flip-flop. So the sides have switched just on this, at this moment, right? So the people who are against the mandates, the travel mandates, for example, say, well, hold on, we have section six mobility rights. And, and the fact that I can't fly means I can't travel across the country. Well, if you hold on, if you read section six, it says everyone has the right to enter, leave in, and remain in the country. And the right to take up residence in any province to pursue a livelihood. Okay? Well, those are all negative rights. In other words, you can't be prevented from entering, leaving, remaining in Canada, or moving to another province. Okay, negative rights means you can't be blocked from doing it. But the people who are saying, well, travel mandate, I can't fly on a plane, violation of Section 6, are essentially arguing, I have a positive right to access air transportation. And all those people who might have been inclined earlier to argue that the charter should include positive rights are now saying, no, no, that's not what the text says. They become textualists suddenly, just just on this issue, and all the textualists have become suddenly positive rights people, saying, "Well, you should, you should, you know, use your living tree to expansively interpret the meaning of section six, so as to say that the the, the right to mobility means nothing if I can't fly." That's not actually what it says, hmm. right? And so, so. These are all a function of what you think is right. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And so without so, passing actual laws, the point is without actually passing laws and without presenting legislation as, you know, like you said, the new law, the, our new law, or this new bill that we will put into place is that all Canadians must receive a COVID vaccination every six months. Instead of doing that, which would have been problematic, they play some of these other games or the other thing that came to my mind is they actually rely heavily on the provinces to kind of do the dirty work for them because in Ontario it was the reopen Ontario act. So it wasn't as if in many ways, the federal government, they had their jurisdiction in federal matters, which was, you know, traveling by plane or what happens in federal buildings. But in many respects, the individual provinces, mm -hmm. none of them having a backbone at all, and none of them actually representing the people well, but seems just doing the bidding of whatever the federal government wanted to do. So the federal government could say, well, that hold on a second that we're not telling you you can't go to a restaurant. That's your premier and that's your municipal health unit. So the, the lesser levels of government 
seemed to do the dirty work for the federal government so they didn't have to get their hands dirty and they didn't actually have to pass these sweeping laws. And so there's layers of, I don't know what word I want to use here. I'm I'm, I'm cautious the word I want to use, but it almost seems like anything to avoid a sweeping Canadian law that every single one of those things was put into place, bylaws and, and new acts opened up, anything that prevented that. So they got what they wanted, but they didn't have to actually make a law which would have been problematic to get it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, most most of these most of these measures and restrictions fell into provincial jurisdiction. And so, yes, in most cases, there are a couple of exceptions like the travel mandate. But, but for the most part, these were provincial rules or local rules that had provincial authorization. Um, and so so people who are inclined to to blame the federal government for this whole shebang are that's not that's not correct. That's not correct. You had you had provinces from coast to coast uh, doing all this as well, including um, provinces of all political stripes, including conservative governments in Alberta and Ontario, who are among the worst with their measures. Um, and who knows behind the scenes who was driving the boat? It's impossible to know exactly whether or not you know they were sort of colluding or whether or not they were just happened to be on the same page or whether or not they gave up their 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 not sort of basically gave the ball handed off the ball to their public mm-hmm. health authorities and said you know tell us what to do because we're yeah. too, too yeah. cowardly that, to do that's it essentially ourselves. what happened but it not only in Canada yeah. across the world right we see elected officials sure. who abrogated their their legal responsibility to represent the peer uh, the people to these nameless fate well they were at once faceless um now now i wish they would go back to that um uh, bureaucrats who are not elected by people and that's how you end up in this you know this technocracy that we find ourselves in ruled by ruled by technocratic elites with no actual yeah that that adds another level or or not direct anyway is now people that are supposed to have the authority to pass legislation through the proper channels, they're not even having to do it anymore. Now you have unelected people, people we did not vote for, and yet we pay their salaries, mm-hmm. that they're the ones through mm-hmm. various coercive means or through pressure or through whatever, that they're actually behind, like AHS, yeah. for example. It was AHS that did the dirty work yeah. behind arresting James Coates and putting fences around his prison. So AHS did the dirty work for the province. So in many regards, Jason Kenney can kind of wash his hands, say, listen, I, we had our rules, but AHS, yeah. they have their, the violation of AHS rules. No one, I didn't vote, no one in Alberta voted for AHS. This is these unelected bureaucrats and mm-hmm. they're now putting things in place. So even the legislature doesn't even, so forget about the provincial, the provincial legislature, they don't have to do their work. These unelected bureaucrats can now do it for them. Mm-hmm. Right, but see, this is the this is the extent to which the three mm-hmm. branches of government are on the same mm-hmm. page, though. Right, so so we we chatted briefly before we began about the idea of a constitutional crisis, and and this is this is the respect in which I would suggest that we don't have one of those really because not well, see, it's technically 
I mean, so the, the meaning of constitutional crisis to some people is where you have a conflict between branches of government who are fighting over who has the right to do what. And, and it's not that they don't fight these three branches. They do. They do have conflict for sure. Um, like, well, maybe we'll get to one later on. But, but for the most part, our legislatures, our, uh, the executive branch of government, and the courts are basically in agreement about the role of the administrative state in society. And it's not that it's not that public health officials are doing stuff rogue. They have been largely, there may be there may be exceptions, but they have largely been given statutory authorization to do what it is that they've done. They've been given very broad discretion to make decisions on a whole lot of our money for sure. But but the legislatures are now in the habit of passing statutes that are basically authorizing orders to to various agencies in the inside the governments to actually make the regulations to actually make the orders to actually make the rules and it's not it, these are legal the courts have said you can delegate your authority to do this kind of thing you can delegate broad discretionary uh, 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 powers, which is problematic. Uh, <laughs> Definitely, it's, of course it is. It's of absolutely it is, problematic. It's, it's, Even the Reformation, a lot of the reformers were saying that magistrates can't be delegate or can't delegate something that they don't inherently have. You can't give something that you don't have. But because our courts have now made it possible for legislatures to broadly delegate all these sorts of powers, they can basically. Um, reproduce this administrative state over and over and over and yes. over again at the detriment yes. to the people. Yes. But you see, this is sort of yeah. what's happening. So you, so you had, you had an important splitting mm -hmm. of authority in the English system between the king and yes. the legislature, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of a sort of an uneasy peace between <laughs> these two branches yeah. of government, or what became yeah. two branches of government. Yeah, yeah it took a and war. What you have in the present. <laughs> Right, yeah, right, yeah. right, 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 and, and 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 what you have today is the coming together of those powers again, because everybody who's involved—everybody is an overstatement, of course—but that these 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 branches of government basically agree about how society should be run mm -hmm. now. So that that separation that you had that 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 was insisted upon that was one of the keys to providing a legal system that championed the liberty of the individual, that that's eroding and things are coming so it's together. So yeah. it's not yeah. a constitutional well crisis and, and in that the branches disagree. That, it's what I would like to label a super de duper constitutional crisis because they're all <laughs> right. Well, it's a blending of the spheres. It's, it's getting rid of those checks and balances. With yeah. a utterly destructive and lawless yep. ideology and they use our constitution as a club and as a living tree, and that's where the crisis is. The crisis is they all agree on a lawless misinterpretation and misapplication of the constitution, but they're all on the same page, and that's the crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you see, so I, yes, exactly, exactly. But but mm -hmm. the but that word lawless is problematic, <laughs> right? Because because you know they are the law. The courts are the mm. law. And and they they have the constitutional role now, of of having the final word about what the law is. So, you know, by definition, right. it's not lawless. Well, it's lawless, law, yeah, exactly. As Christians, that's where we, we would, would say we lawless would point in the sense law, that obviously. ultimately <laughs> yeah, any authority yeah. that they have 
one has been given to them mm-hmm. by their creator, and two, the final mm-hmm. definer, the one who holds the actual standard for not just right and wrong, but how it is that authority is to be used and exercised, is God. So even though they, even though it's lawful in mm-hmm. a sense, we would say because they are a acting in a way that is contrary to what is good and right and true. And B, because they're abusing or misusing the authority that's been given to them, it's lawless in terms of higher law, that they are they are clearly defying an actual true objective standard and a true moral law. But you're right, that it's lawful on the ground, but we, when we say lawless, we mean, no, it is, it is wrong, um, objectively so, and, mm-hmm. uh, and in defiance of higher yeah. law. Yeah. But there's a there's a tension there too, though, right? Because a lot of what the uh, some of the objectionable aspects of what's happening in the courts mm. today is that the courts are taking on the role exactly of 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 deciding what they think mm-hmm. is proper behavior in the moral sense. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And now, and and you know, mm-hmm. you or I may disagree about their assessment, mm-hmm. but the fact of 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 imposing their own moral or social values, yeah. as opposed to simply applying the text that they're yeah, they're given. supposed to be literally a hermeneutical branch of government. They get a get a law, right. they interpret that law based on their legal expertise. But now we're seeing them legislate from the bench and push their own moral ideas, like you're saying, on on the Canadian public. Right. When it suits them. But when the it real... suits them, as you've yeah. just uh, mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. And, and yes, right. And but so but so the 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 diff, one of the difficulties there is that as soon as you get into the realm of saying, well what's moral it should be legal and mm-hmm. vice versa. Then the problem there is, well, you can sort of read what the law is supposed to say, mm-hmm. but the morality of the question is is a, is an idea that's firmly held by many different people, but held in a mm-hmm. different way. And so, when you have a conflict between beliefs about what's moral and right, mm-hmm. then how are you supposed to resolve that in a way that the legal um, uh, system should reflect without sort of having the whole thing collapse upon you. yeah exactly yeah and and i mean that's that's where i think those those protections those uh, delegations of the different powers and the different branches and each of those branches functioning in the way that they ought um given the presuppositions of su- the supremacy of god and higher law that's kind of how mm-hmm. the system should function but you're right now that we're in this system where all three branches of government are blending together they're they're distinct spheres are not as evenly and well-defined anymore and they essentially don't have regard for higher law in in, that they they are essentially law themselves as you've you've been talking about that's when we get in the sticky mess is is they get Mm -hmm. to define for us how we ought to live whereas Mm -hmm. the the liberal democracy the christian tradition has has really um, put their stake in limited government so people can live in their lives according to their deepest uh, convictions, right? Right. And, and uh, to right. me, it's right. just amazing. Like, 
I know it's a fundamental freedom in the charter, but I don't even think our judges or our or the legislature in Canada understand conscience because it's almost as though that doesn't even exist in Canada anymore. Um, well, let's just let's just so let, let's just um, consider the claim <laughs> that certain COVID measures discriminate. Yeah. Because they do, but they might not do so in an unlawful way. Uh, people have taken on the idea that discrimination is illegal, but it's actually not. Yeah, it's really it's well, but but it goes it goes further though, right? So discriminate in the normal ordinary English sense of the word, to discriminate means to tell apart and treat differently. Yes, to choose to choose. And and that's what laws do. They draw lines. They discriminate between this and that, right? So we have a prohibition against murder. Uh, you could say that that law discriminates between people who murder and people who don't. And so discrimination is not unlawful. It's discrimination that's specifically identified as unlawful that's unlawful. And we have both the human rights codes in the various provinces and the federal a code and we have the charter and and those provisions say that people have the right to be free from discrimination on the basis of certain enumerated grounds or or analogous grounds but grounds that are essentially reflected in the provision and so any ground that's not reflected in that list not prohibited yes yeah right so so if you are a restaurateur and you are advertising for service for your restaurant and your ad says, well, I just want tall, beautiful people. Mm -hmm. That's discrimination, yeah. but it's not unlawful discrimination mm -hmm. because those yeah, grounds let, are not let, listed in the, in the, yeah, exactly. Earls can hire, and hire let, from modeling. You can, let, you can let the public decide whether or not they want <laughs> yeah, to support, sure. but what you can't do is, is say mm -hmm. to them, you can't run your business this way. Cause that's, that's not unlawful. It might be unwise. It might be rather yeah. foolish, but let, let lack of wisdom, lack of sure. wisdom and foolishness right. is not, illegal we're going to see how that plays out mm -hmm. exactly so but but to the vaccination case for a moment i mean the 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 imposition of the mandates and their mm -hmm. consequences is discriminatory in that in that broad sense mm -hmm. of the word but it, it may very well not be i think the difference in the vaccination would be the when so if in you're if you're a business owner and you say from now on I will only hire people who've been vaccinated. Yep. That's your prerogative. I think the difference would be when we start getting mm -hmm. into the uh, labor laws where if you currently are employed and if you currently have an agreement that is not clearly yeah. spelled out in such a way, mm -hmm. then the, imp then the imposition could be a yeah, danger because a, then you would say, hold on yeah. a second. We have an employee agreement. We have an understanding where you can't just throw this in the middle. If a company wants to say as of the renewal of our employee agreement or at the beginning of the calendar year when everything resets from this moment on that's a little bit different but the in the middle of it i would say that especially when you have an employee agreement well i'm not sure that it is i'm not sure that it is so here's the problem so imagine imagine the way i mean and this is this is my vision of the way things are supposed to be right so if you were if you were if we were all dealing with independent individuals, both personal and business. So, you know, 
every every business was a, was a small business run by an owner, and every every employee was an individual person with their own with their own thoughts and 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 inclinations, and you had free market bargaining for labor between all those individuals and all those businesses on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Then, as far as I'm concerned, the business can do anything it wants. They could say, "Look, we don't we don't want you to work here if you're not vaccinated," or don't want you to work here if you are vaccinated. And to the extent that that should be illegal would depend upon the terms of the contract, if there already was one, as you alluded to, Andrew. Right. right. But otherwise, there'd be no need for a human rights code because you'd have so many individual people to bargain with in all different kinds of ways. The foolish ones, the foolish ones would discriminate on the basis of things like race and sex and and, and, and sexuality and that kind of thing. That would be silly, silly, stupid thing to do because you would cut off your own market and, and threaten your own commercial viability. That's just dumb. But you'd be, sure, but you'd be, a, but you'd be allowed to and the, and, and the protection for everybody would be the fact that you had a free market and the next guy down the street's not gonna be that stupid. And you can, you can bargain. And so it doesn't matter who you hire, doesn't matter who you serve, you can open your own business. Everything is free and 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 protected by the fact that nobody controls the market. Okay? But our present COVID or the, the, the COVID situation that we went through is not that in so many ways. And and, and starts with the with the idea that the whole thing was orchestrated by this technocratic state. They were the ones that pushed. They were the ones that dictated. Those were the ones that ordered the, 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 the mandates, the masking, the lockdowns. You can't open your business and so on and so forth. So, right. Businesses did make mm -hmm. that free choice before yeah. any mandates. Exactly. They made the free well, choice so, whether they wanted so, to impose mask mandates on employees or customers. So, so I, I wanted and to so, make, I wanted yeah. to make that point. So the choices yeah. that have been given to people over the last two and a half years are what's called the Hobson's choice. And it's, it's people yes. have understood that to be a logical fallacy. It's, it's a smoke screen. Essentially. It's not really a choice. It's an ultimatum posited as a choice. So it's essentially you're mandating something without doing it. So it's an illusion um, that people have been able to understand. Yeah. Sure. It's Sure, but what, what what distinguishes that difficult choice from other difficult choices that are quite legitimate? So, simple simple scenario. Let let's say you're hiring somebody to rake your leaves, and you say to them, uh, you know, here's the price: uh, rake my leaves, front and back. But by the way, while you're doing the job on my property, I prefer if you didn't smoke. That's the condition of the employment. Now. Let's say that person says, well, but, you know, that's coercive. I, I, that I have a choice about whether to smoke, and you are making me choose one way or the other. And if I don't choose your way, I don't get the job. And the answer is, yeah, that's exactly right. We don't call that coercion, though. We call that bargaining. And it's bargaining because you have two independently, freely agents negotiating what the deal's going to be. And we don't have a problem with that. We don't call it coercion. And so in the employment situation, it's really not coercion either. If you have an employer and an employee and the employer says, well, here's one of the conditions upon your, your employment. And by the way, in the employment contract, we're allowed to change our policies from time to time about various things. Here's one of those policies. Please comply or, or don't work here. It's not really coercive in the 
in the mm -hmm. pure sense, in the unlawful sense, it's not coercive. What distinguishes all of these situations during COVID is the fact it's being yeah. orchestrated Definitely. by the yeah, by, by the government who you, has ultimate yes. <laughs> monopoly they did, they on coercive yes. give power in our choice. In, they said that's right. or that's right. in the no. case of my friends who own a restaurant, because because they wouldn't ask people for their medical status, the AGCO came for their liquor license and then eventually right. find them into oblivion. They didn't give them the choice. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where it becomes a that's Hobson's correct. choice. That's 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 right. That is essentially not yeah. a choice. It is a a course of ultimatum. You will do yeah. it this way, or we will cut you yeah, out of exactly. society. That's this, essentially this, what this was is, being said. This is the Without growth of the managerial state because you need to allow businesses to mm -hmm. decide. That's right. Whether they want to make these ridiculous decisions on their own and then suffer the consequences of it, that's fine. Let them let them be foolish because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, everyone will decide whether they want to, you know, put something on their face or go shop elsewhere. That's their decision. No one has a right to shop mm -hmm. at yeah. Costco, right? That's not a right. You choose whether you want to or not. That's fine. Yeah. But right. once you have the right. threat of law enforced yep. by elected officials, it's a, we're in a whole other world now. Now, would you say that there's a difference? Exactly mm -hmm. so. And it doesn't even have to be it doesn't even it doesn't even have to be that literal, right? So even if you have the technocrats sort of breathing down your your neck, even if they haven't made it a rule rule, as in, if you don't do this, you're going to be in violation of that, then, right? But, you know, we're watching what you're doing, and we we, we would prefer if you would do it this way. You know, Do those rules that's, change that's when there's a difference on. between a public and a private because, institution? So like a hospital, for example, a hospital which is a public institution, publicly funded, would would we say that the same rule that so in in Kingston we have two hospitals really we have one now because Kingston Health Sciences is right. KGH and Hotel do they really now they're owned by the same the same organization so let's say we have one hospital in Kingston really if this one hospital in Kingston uh -huh. decides to also say you can't come here unless you're vaccinated are they also because they're a public institution because it's healthcare. It is is it the same as a business which is to, which is a that is a privately owned free exchange? Whereas we would say that given the way our country breaks down, right. and also given the fact that I pay into OHIP, I should be able to go to the hospital and not be turned away. Because is it are the rules the same, or are the rules different with public institutions like that, where they don't have the freedom in the same way to say you can't come here unless you have the jab? Right. Excellent question. I would suggest that the rules are different, but of course, the the the, the real course, answer is correct. that we shouldn't have that kind yeah. of a system, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, so that you are able to bargain independently mm -hmm. with one. If the one won't serve you, then you can go to the next, even if it happens to be in the next town. I mean, or or, or you know, maybe a better example is doctors. I mean, if every doctor was an independent businessman. Mm -hmm. And you had the first three who wouldn't let you in without a mask. You know, the fourth probably yeah, and would. He, does, he doesn't have, have to worry about having his well. if, as long as he doesn't have that's... to worry about having his medical license revoked. He should right. be free to do so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah. so. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But 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 given the situation that we have, um, you know, with 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 you know only one hospital in a town, and for that matter, all the hospitals being governed by the same single payer system, and for that matter, all the doctors as as well. 
the doctors may, may appear to be independent businessmen, but they're all they all, all only have one client for for all the services that are that are under the umbrella of the Medicare system. Uh, that's not a free market. That's not a market at all. That's that's a, a captured market where the government is is dictating the terms. Mm-hmm. And so when you have that situation, yeah, I would have thought that that we should approach that as though the 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 rights of people to make their own conscientious decisions and so on would be much more acute. But, but so this it appears not. To yeah, be and that's the that's the really sad part of what we've seen, especially over the last two and a half years. But we've seen that revolution take place in our society where it seems like all branches of civil service uh, of all all of the entire apparatus of the bureaucratic, technocratic administrative state are more yes. intent on fostering and building their power and control to manage society than they are to zealously protect the rights and freedoms of Canadian citizens. And that's the crisis that we really find ourselves in in Canada and not only in Canada, but across the world in in, in the Western world broadly, that tends to be the case. And that's, why so many people, I think, because of the course of power of these institutions, have lost faith in them. And, and we're, we're really experiencing that cultural crisis. So you are, you are Chief Justice yeah. on the Supreme Court of Canada. <laughs> yeah. And uh, let's assume for a second that our prime minister is not a WEF, WEF puppet with half of his cabinet having been grown in the in the rotten soil of the WEF Young Leaders Program that's ushering us into a neo-Marxist uh, globalist world. Let's assume that's not the case, okay? Yeah. So let's assume he's not that puppet and you are the chief right. justice. How do we get out of this? Do yes. we need a do we need to yes. just really bolster our constitution or do we need to basically scrap it and we need something new altogether? Well, we 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 could we could really do with a different constitution or at least a revised constitution. But one of the most important ideas, I think, and there are grounds for it in our common law, or 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 if you like our, our if you like to put it this way, our common law jurisprudence. Mm-hmm. That is, how is the constitution interpreted? What should what what do the words mean? How should we go about determining that matter? There's a good case to make for a Canadian non-delegation doctrine. Uh, it, my, 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 so J- James Johnson has made this case very well and rigorously researched based upon the jurisprudence over a period of time from the Supreme Court of Canada and the Privy Council. The, so, so right now, the prevailing view is that legislatures are able constitutionally to delegate very broad powers to the executive branch, to the cabinet to make regulations, to officers to make decisions, and so on. The, a non-delegation doctrine basically would say this. Yes, you can still delegate powers, of course. I mean, the executive branch of government has all kinds of officers and agencies that, that do things, and they need statutory powers to carry them out. But here's the thing that you cannot delegate. You cannot, you cannot delegate the core function that you are there to serve 
It is your job to make the call about what the rules are. Well, that, that, that's the core function. The core function is to, to tell us what the rules are. In other words, to, 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 make, to make the value judgments and the policy decisions for which you are elected. You, you have democratic legitimacy that neither of the other branches have. The executive branch is appointed, and so are the judges. You are elected. And so it is your job in your statutes to tell us the substance of the rule you have in mind. Instead of what you largely do now, which is, here's the topic, and the cabinet or, or whoever can actually make the rules that matter. No, 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 no. It's your job in the statute to make the call about what the rule is. Draw the line so we can see how to be on one side of the line or the other. And if you haven't done that, then the delegation of power that you've provided in your statute is 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 not valid. We we, Go back. we add that in, and is it through an amendment or an addition? Well, you see, that could be it could be amended in the constitution. Mm -hmm. You could you could, but if but listen, if you had a if you had a court that was inclined to apply mm -hmm. the jurisprudence that's been laid down over a period of time, you could just do it that yeah. way. And now it sounds like I'm I, I'm I'm advocating for an act of this court and. <laughs> I mean, I suppose in a way I am. But that that is that that, that 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 interpretation though that you're calling for it is rooted in British common law tradition, though, is it not? So yeah, basically, exactly. what we need to do is a big red yeah, marker. Correct. We need yeah. to write on page one of the charter: "Do your job." <laughs> Underline. <laughs> right, but but, but that job that that job like because what you're saying is. The problem is a lot of these branches of government get they get the mandate to cover this broad swath of area, and then they get to determine what the extent of their powers are and the rules therein. So it's ill-defined and it's extra legal in the sense that it's not originating with the elected members of parliament. Yes, okay. exactly. And so here's here's part of the tension, yeah. right? So is it it's a contest between sort of two different ways to view mm -hmm. law yeah. itself, right? The technocrats view law as an instrument, mm -hmm. you know, a means yes. to an end. Here's the tool that we use in order to achieve the social goals that we think are important. Mm -hmm. The other way of looking at it is to see that the law reflects the values of the society. And there are certain sort of fundamental principles that should be incorporated into the law. And once you have those in place, once the principles are right, well, then so whatever the law, result so would, you get, would it be helpful to say get. this: that the technocrats say that the law is an instrument or a tool to be used, but we need to view the law as a ruler yep. to measure the standard. To say this yeah, is the standard, standard. we measure against it, so we don't deviate from the standard mm -hmm. because we have this this measurement that we know what is and what isn't. So the law should be a ruler or a standard. In, instead sure. of a screwdriver. Right, sure. Yeah, so the law is a tape <laughs> a measure, hammer. Sure. not a hammer. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And and so that that reflects the degree to which you think that both the executive and the courts should be involved in the mm -hmm. fashioning of society. Yeah. Right. If it's a hands off kind of thing, I mean, the, the traditional way of articulating the role of the executive branch is that they this is where the name comes from. Right. They're to execute yeah. the orders of the legislature. Mm 
Yeah. Right? No. But that's not the way they think no, about exactly. it. No, exactly. They 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 are they are doing as you described, Andrew. They are they are using legal means to mm-hmm. fashion the outcome that they think yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, if you go down south, Barack Obama with the veto powers in the executive, he said, "I'll I'll rule of my last term by a pen and a phone," and you know, sure. um, many progressives had long lamented the American Constitution because the separations of powers have been so strong traditionally that. Uh, it really eliminated uh, eliminated uh, an energetic executive from really taking um, power and force over the country. Like you have a whole school of Fabian socialists who who are, if you're thinking of socialism, that's evolutionary socialism versus revolutionary right. socialism. They've been very influential in our nation um, because they mm-hmm. were very influential in the British tradition. Um they were really up. They loved parliamentary governments because those separations of powers weren't as defined as the United States of America. Right. So right. they right. could get yes. more energetic executives that can really shape and fashion the country after their socialistic will. And so right. like, I, I really appreciate what you laid out because I think, you know, limiting the delegation of power is something that could happen quick and and rel- and it would be rooted in in british common law tradition it's not something yeah, that's one that's totally one part foreign. of the solution if you will or maybe a fir- an initial first step that is actionable is saying yeah. whatever your core job is that can't be given to someone else to do and and, and almost like we mm-hmm. have to start from square so what square else would one. you do like let, let's Justice level the Party. playing field and then do? start from this Chief yeah. Justice. so that would be the first <laughs> thing so would, would that basically mean we don't need a new well, we wouldn't so need a new constitution like, as long mm-hmm. as we could at put these measures in place and add these notes to, to to make sure that we're clear where we can't deviate would that would that save mm-hmm. the charter is it is it is it salvageable well it would Mm. Be honest. Uh, do, do, we, but, do we need to? But, do we need to get rid of it? Yeah. Ideally, should we craft a new we'll constitution? Go a long way. Right. Yeah. Well, so if you had the so, yeah. so right. in, it might, in it's, theory, it's probably never yes, going to happen in practice. No, mm-hmm. I mean in theory, it's not going to happen because it's also it's also very dangerous to try because the way things are right now, if you open up the constitution, it's open. Mm-hmm. And then all those forces that want a constitution that is more progressive and more intrusive and more technocratic than the one we have now will. What are the stipulations, by the way? Are there are there so at least are there actual stipulations in the charter that that give the grounds or that say if this is in place, whether it's a percentage agreement and a certain number of these people on board and, and across the branches, that we can basically not just add to it, but essentially. You know, it, we can just undo it. Like, are those, is that, is that kill switch, right? Is that, is there a self-destruct mechanism in the charter that it's written in there where it says, given this, this, and this, we can basically scrap this and build a new one? Or is it kind of, it's hardwired in, there's nothing we can do? Sure. If, if you satisfy the amending formula that applies, and there's several different ones, but the, but the main one for, most of the kinds of things we're talking about now is the is the is the fifty slash seven formula. Basically, you need uh, 
seven provinces and the federal government, and those seven provinces have to contain more than half of the population. If you get agreement amongst that cohort, then you can change the constitution. It's very difficult to achieve that. I mean, people have said basically impossible, uh, but it's possible. And if you do, if you if 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 it is possible, and you achieve that, then you can change whatever you want. Yeah. So probably unlikely um, that that that's going to happen. Um, it's so much more difficult than getting a legislature or a court, say Supreme Court of Canada, to to mm-hmm. to deal with this non-delegation yes. idea because that only requires yeah. one in one now, jurisdiction. Now, so I, I this is I'm just throwing this out there, and you can bat yeah, we're, yeah, we're all yeah. Just we, you can just bat the, it around what, whatever you want to do. Court, right? That's who yeah. you are now. Yeah, and this is this is why right. people are going to want to get behind the paywall because we can have the conversations uh, that we need to have uh, that they want to be a fly on the wall for. Would the most expedient way, you know, I, I do think we need a new constitution. I do think we're way farther beyond uh, any sort of totalitarianism, though it may be soft in our nation, than what was experienced that led to the American war for independence. I I think we're way beyond that. So I think we absolutely need a new constitution, a written one that is far better than the one we have. But if really, given the mechanisms that we have, that's pretty much impossible, is the most expedient mm-hmm. route to wrest power away from this bureaucratic administrative state is for provinces to do like the conversation in Alberta and say, hey, we're going on our own. We're going to be like, it, do province, should provinces start saying, hey, we're not okay with this. This is totally insane we need to you know use the power that we have legally to say things have to change is that the most expedient road is that even possible well <laughs> i mean perhaps okay. i mean I, and I, listen I, I i like what alberta is doing i like what daniel smith has been doing but it's not enough in this sense the the, the provinces have their own managerial states and they're they're extensive as well. It's not this is not a you know a federal government telling the provinces what to do. Right, right. So I mean, I I would like the premier of a province to say you know we're we're changing our style of government from a from an expansive manager uh, an expansive administrative state to a night watchman state. We are going to have police. We're going to have courts. We're going to have some other sort of absolutely essential kinds of services, but that's it. All the programs that you have experienced, all of the subsidizations, all of the directives, all of the, of the, all of the things that the provinces do, that's, that's gone. And we're going to live like, we are actually free people. Now, you don't need to quarrel with the federal government about that because you have the power over the matters in which the, are many on the provincial level. The this is healthcare. This is education. Uh, 90, 91, 91, 91. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and um, on the provincial level, sorry, go on. this is healthcare. 
This is mm-hmm. education. This is your own provincial yeah. police, right? Like on a provincial level, there would be so much, so much where you know, if, let the let the federal government do their thing. You can govern your own province, and you you have yeah. that's all that's sure. all in your purview. You don't have to worry about that so much. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a it's a common it's a common mm-hmm. move to pretend to fight the other jurisdiction. You know, the provinces yeah. fight the federal government over things, but. And, and don't get me wrong, there are conflicts and there is mm-hmm. interference, no question, yeah. about important things like resources, for sure. But a lot of the important changes a province could make, they could make entirely on their own without interference, yeah. no questions asked. Yeah, and so so realistically, that's it. That's probably, if we're going to be expelling energy into trying to change political systems, it probably has to be done more locally at the provincial level to convince provincial politicians to wield the power that they have to stop the administrative state on that level and then try and like i'm always surprised that more provinces don't take the tack that quebec has in limiting the power of the federal government on them and fighting for their own interests um based off of you know using their kind of provincial powers to push back against the federal government and and even you know you think of um alberta pressing for their sovereignty like i'm i'm radical enough that you know if if these amendments to the constitution aren't aren't there if if it's not possible yeah i think provinces need to say is this union even worth salvaging at this point? You know, do we need a national divorce? Like Canada is such a large nation that most of our provinces yeah. are way bigger than any countries in the entire world. It's not unheard of for <laughs> countries uh, of our sizes of the provinces to exist. Is that even and possible in our, in our country? Like I know in the United sure. States is explicit that there are, there are measures for secession and the reality is it was a union of states that, that right it was it was it was different in Canada i mean maybe i'm wrong but my understanding is it's not it wasn't a number of provinces that ended up coming together and saying let's make a country it was a larger country that was split into different provinces mm-hmm. so do we even have those mechanisms in Canada to say we will fully separate yeah. and do our own thing is that is that anywhere in our in our in our paperwork is that in the fine print well um, I think there's probably enough jurisprudence on it, given the mm-hmm. experience with Quebec, mm-hmm. so that we're probably not. Yeah. Right, and so yeah, and so the 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 expectations. I mean, I mean, it does come down also to a intensely political question, but 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 the but even but. In the arena of the law, I mean, the Supreme Court of Canada, I think, has has commented enough on the Quebec situation where you'd at least have some signposts about the kind of threshold you might need in order to pull that off. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't I can't tell you in, in specifically what you'd require, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility. But but it still begs the question, though. If you had a province that actually separated, 
would you have created a different model of governance or are they just trying to get away from federal interference and plan to carry on in basically the way that they are now oh yeah so, no that and so that's like right? if i were premier of manitoba for for a day i would say we are going to now whether like i'm just this is all hypothetical everybody i would say fundamental to why we would separate is so we could chart our own course so we could like you said dissolve the administrative state lay out a, a constitution that that is well thought out that protects those basic fundamental god-given negative rights of individuals like that's that's what i'm saying like a, a province like you're saying danielle smith's and her sovereignty thing it's not going far enough and i would say yeah i, I want to go all the way because because remember so under Section 92 of the Constitution, uh, provinces, among other things, have jurisdiction over property and civil rights. So many of the things that happen inside a province in terms of, you know, legal rights and freedoms relate to some provincial power. All the COVID, I mean, not all of it, but much of it. Right. And and the international border and so on, but otherwise, yes. And so, I don't want to get distracted by the the separation thing. If Alberta under Jason Kenney had wanted to do things entirely differently, they could have done it, and they they wouldn't have had to separate to do it, right? Um, and so, I, it, so. In a way, the, the the major practical obstacle to all of this is to convince a significant portion of the population, the critical mass, that the idea of the nanny state is wrong. Unless you They'll get, get it that, eventually when it all collapses. Yeah, yeah. Because, because when it all collapses under the weight this, of its own yeah. obese corruption, <laughs> and it, which, that, which, which is inevitable, but when it does come down... Yeah, and we have tons people, of people historical then, examples you're right, of it. The goal like, is to help is to yeah. wise them up to yeah. the fact that we need to deal with it before we get there. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's not wait right. till the barbarians are at the gate. Let's not wait until China's well, at the gate. Well, hold on. Yeah. So, but hold on. So this is a this is this is this is the bad news version yes. of things. So my take on this is mm -hmm. that there are a lot of people out there who you know, largely agree with what we've been yeah. saying, who are of the mind to think, well, we have to defend, we have to defend the institutions, we have to defend our traditions, we have to defend the country that we have. Mm -hmm. Okay. My response to that has been, yeah, it's, it's going down. You're way yeah, too it's late. Going for down. That. Yes. Way yeah. too late for that. Yeah. So, so th that, that's yeah. what we talk about on the program a lot. Like, I think as people would, I struggle calling myself a conservative because I understand the Christian dominion mandate to be both conservative and progressive. We're conserving the standards as laid out in God's word, but we're progressing in the fact that we're, we're always reforming to that word of God. We're, we're, we're actively building and cultivating in a, in, in a, a real positive direction. So like essentially the the biblical worldview is right what do you have you go from garden state and whereas christians not get, getting back to the garden the full consummation of the new heavens and earth it's 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 described as 
the city, a city, a fully cultivated city coming down from heaven. So we have this progressive eye to 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 the future, but we're conserving mm-hmm. basic fundamental God-given norms of culture and society, the things that he's hardwired into creation. That's what we're conserving. So, yeah, like I do I do agree there's too much of a tendency to be reactionary in, in our conserving and saying, Oh, we're just trying to go back to the 1950s or something. Well, the problem is these seeds have been long laid that the 1950s isn't far enough. The 1950s were also (laughs) so great. Then why is it that the 1960s Mm -hmm. immediately follow the 1950s, right? Like clearly the, clearly whatever caused some of the very radical stuff we saw in the sixties and seventies, it didn't just appear out of nowhere that those were already there. Mm-hmm. Like what? The, yeah. The progressive era happened uh, uh, like decades mm-hmm. before the 1950s, you know? Um, and, and a lot of these ideas were, were, you know, put in practice, especially during the first and second world war like we've talked about. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a bit of a, of a paradox as mm-hmm. well, because we've identified the valuable things that the Western tradition and Western legal systems and so on produce. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea of individual autonomy and so on is, you know, one of his crowning achievements. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it may be that there was never actually an ideal moment, oh. that everything was perfect and that you didn't want it to go back yeah, to. Yeah, right? exactly. So, right? And, and, and so I think it's a much better plan, but safer idea to insist upon going forward mm-hmm. to things. Yes. Rather than trying to go back to yeah, anything. It, I mean, yeah, there are there are very important ideas mm-hmm. that, that need to be retained yeah. and promoted and, and, and solidified. Mm-hmm. But... But yeah, I mean, and, I, and I, let's go I think forward. that's I think what I'm trying to say, my vision of both that conservative and progressive elements, I think that was yeah. well established in the War of Independence and the American Revolution. And I think there's a great juxtaposition between that and the French Revolution, where the French Revolution wanted to topple all those societal norms, literally go back to day zero, right? And then right. create a 10 day work week. So they're literally, <laughs> they're literally uh, like totally trying to change all the fundamental, I would say creational norms that God's established. Whereas the, the American revolution was a revolution in society fighting for civil rights and these, you know, trying to uphold those, those norms, right? It's, it was much more of a Burkean revolution than kind of a radical socialistic type revolution that took place in in France. Right. And I, and I appreciate the difference and Mm. I I agree with it. I do think that you've reflected those two movements. Yeah. Well, Um, but there is a, there is a, there is a tendency in the Burkean tradition to insist upon the value of institutions. Yes. And I, and I know some Burkeans yeah. who, who are wedded to the idea that they have to save the institutions that are now being contaminated. Oh, yes. Put it that way. Yeah. It, and, and that's, that's, and that's, that's a danger. We we don't save institutions yeah. for institutions' sake, right? Mm-hmm. And that's right. that's right. where conservatives yeah. fall into trouble. And hey, we're we're yes. we're reformers. We we we, <laughs> we right. didn't protect the institution of the Roman Church. Now that is what was initially right. It was a, it was initially started as an attempt at reformation. I think it would right. actually be better understood as an exile because because that reformation didn't take place. What 
what happened? They went out and they formed better, more faithful institutions, right? So they didn't protect institution for institution state. And a lot of people will even point back to the Reformation as the start of the modern world, right? Um, right. The, the end of the medieval time and the start of the, you know, but yep. so, so I think we need those Velcro strips in our mind that, that we're not protecting institutions for institutions sake. We have to, you know, from a Christian perspective, we have to understand scripture in such a way to say, what are appropriate institutions? What are these covenants that God has written into creation? We would say that, you know, the, the, the family, the church and the state are important. The, those are like the covenantal structures of society that we need to honor, but they need to be ultimately faithful to this external standard. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, I think a great point that you 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 have you you have to bring up we as those who want to fight for for people's basic god-given liberties rights and freedoms we want to fight for the history of western civilization we have to say yes we want to fight for appropriate institutions functioning properly and if they're not functioning properly they are a part of the problem not a part of the solution so i do appreciate you having those words of caution to say Listen, we can't fall into either of these ditches, right? They're bad ditches. We have to be able to have these conversations so we can yeah. understand where to press forward, how to move forward in a po positive way. And I think that's part of why I want to have these conversations with people like yourself, Bruce, is because I think we have a lot to offer people. And I think we can point to history and say, look, when these principles were put into place, look at what happened. Look at what the fruit of these principles have been over the course of history. And when they're, when they're not put in place, when they're destroyed, look at the results. And I think as those who would be considered conservative, um, in general parlance, we have to do a lot better job of having a positive vision for the future of society than just saying, no, not that mm -hmm. that's necessary. Yes. Like don't trans the kids don't cut off health. You know, all that stuff is really, really important, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. And we have to tell better stories and we have to have yep. a vision that's, I think part of the reason so many people love socialism is they have a vision of a utopia that at least people can, mm -hmm. I mean, they don't define it because uh, they can't define it, but uh, that's what people are striving for because people are created in the image of God. They, 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 they have this internal telos that's pushing them towards that goal. They don't know how to define it necessarily, but that's what conservatives have to do. We can't just be curmudgeons saying no. We have to say no because of this and this is the goal. This is the plan for the future. This is where we're headed. And look at what we can have if we and the tension go that is way. That so the vision for the future yeah. is not as the the Marxist utopians would say, a totally novel thing that we have just created on our own. And this is the tension. It's a vision for the future. It's mm -hmm. a it's new institutions. It's the framing of new constitutions. But the justification for them, the foundational principles that undergird this vision for the future, this good kind of progress, are actually very, very old things that we can't forget. So it's both, 
right? These very old things, these truths, yeah. these principles yeah, exactly. that have been true forever because they are objectively true and because they indeed communicate something about the nature of life and humanity and law. They're very old things. They're not new things, but their mm -hmm. application yeah. and also the structures we build as time moves on must be grounded upon them. So it's both. Mm -hmm. It's it's a Right. There must be both constancy and gripped, change. gripping and, yeah. these historic, unchangeable, mm -hmm. objective truths and realities, but another hand that is willing to plow forward and yeah. and and build and progress in the good way that uh, that we wanted to. <laughs> quick last a quick last question for you, Bruce. As I had this in my mind, um, yes. if we are to Right. We, we should if let you we go. Are, we could if talk we are forever. To glean from sure. <laughs> the examples we've seen historically, whether it's the Magna Carta, whether it's um, the American Constitution. I mean, we have our charter as well. If you were to maybe pick one or two, whatever, that you were to say, out of all the ones we've seen historically— uh, this is maybe the strongest. This is maybe the best. If, if minus, you know, fashioning a new one, if we were to pick an already created constitution or governing document for nation, who who do you think historically has, they've just, that's a really good one. They, they, they've, they've come, they've done the best job at putting it together that this, this would be a good document to govern a nation and base laws upon this. Could you pick one? Could you maybe there's top one or top two? Well, I mean, I think I think the leading candidate would have to be the the American Constitution. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it it has flaws absolutely, and they're in trouble now as well. Um, but but for its basic architecture, it it has served them well over a long period of time. It served them through several crises. Uh, you got to admire the the wisdom of the framers as they are referred to. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just leave it at that. I would see what, how you could improve it and fix the problems that have arisen since then. But if you're looking for a document to start with and its premises, you probably couldn't do go far wrong by starting with, with that. But you know, here, here so I had an uncomfortable thought the other day, which is this, <laughs> um, it goes back to Marx and a lot of trouble that we have today can be, can be, it's always the Germans, eh? Always the Germans we'll causing so much trouble for us. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, my German audience. I don't, that's, I'm, not, I'm not being serious well, but, here. We have great cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it started yeah. with Hegel and his philosophy, and Marx picked that up. But yeah. <laughs> but so here's the thought: What if Marx was right? In in this sense, he and, and maybe not in the particular way that he meant, but one of his basic propositions was that capitalism would eventually evolve inevitably to something else. It would collapse under its own weight. And, and you know, we've, we've had, well, I'm not sure that what we've had recently should really be called capitalism. <laughs> Absolutely not. There are certainly, yeah, right? If you talk to libertarians, crony, they would crony, set their hair on crony fire. Capitalism yeah, 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 well, yeah, I mean, crony capitalism I, I mean, is I'm, very different than myself. capitalism. No. Yeah. And even Absolutely. capitalism, it's not a good term. Like, it would be free market systems, right? Marx came up with that term to describe this system that he abhorred so much. 
Yeah. Sure. And, and I mean, I, for my part, I, I mean, I'm a libertarian type, mm -hmm. frankly, and I would define capitalism as simply the idea that the people who own property are the ones to decide mm -hmm. what the property should be used yeah. for. And that's basically yeah. it. As long as you have that and you have a market, then you have capitalism. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, to the extent that our Western liberal societies and to the extent that they can be called capitalist are now imploding. Hmm. I'm just, I just wonder if there was something to it, if there was something in the success of them that led to their failure. Well, so, so that biblically that's explained, right? Because affluence, like, cause, cause it's not free markets in and of themselves. Like I, Vivek Ramaswamy, I just finished reading uh, woke Inc. I think that's the book that he wrote. Really good yeah. book. I, yeah. I would highly recommend yeah. it. Um, he kind of says the same thing. He talks about capitalism when it it's full in full bloom, fully flourishes. It has this way of leading to moral degradation or or comfort or an affluent like it. It's 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 distilled in the idea in the Bible that once you are affluent, once you've been blessed by living according to God's norms, you ought not to you have a moral imperative not to get fat and happy not to get fat and comfortable and forget what god's said because you know free markets they're amoral in the sense that that that's just sure. it's just describing it's descriptive of how people interact in free exchange with one another but you need that prescriptive element uh in order to direct that powerful force that generates so much affluence so much wealth so much profit prosperity you need that prescriptive directive that telos that pushes you in proper ways see that's very yeah. interesting i i wasn't thinking about it in quite those terms yeah uh the 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 the, the aspect i was thinking of is how over time, a market gets corrupted by vested interests and protectionism. Oh, yes. And people sort of take take control of things that they should not have control of. And so the 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 weakness of capitalism is to is the failure to adhere to its own moral. Oh yes, for and sure. Allow, and allow for you know for for cabals and cartels and, and, cartels and yeah and, to kick the ladder out once you and i think the answer part of the answer is what we yeah, see and the that's... framers of the american constitution outline is they're clear that this system only works for a just and moral society and so the weakness of capitalism ultimately yes is people in that mm -hmm. when and that's that's the weakness yeah, of yeah. capitalism that if you it's if total you gravity, have that's a, the a people that are not flawless but that are mm -hmm. governed by a certain moral understanding with duties and responsibilities with rights and privileges and they there's something that grounds them if that exists mm -hmm. then the system can flourish and the problem is when people start abandoning that so even the examples you've given of self-interest self-interest yeah. is not a mark of a just and moral society where the concerns of selflessness or um uh, uh, generosity or not using manipulation. So the, 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 what you're basically saying is, again, what I think the framers of the American Constitution said, that this system works so long as the people within this system, mm -hmm. by and large, with their flaws, buy into the moral underpinnings yeah. that support it. But once the people reject it, yeah, then we see what we see where a even the American Constitution, even their entire system now, 
can be so thoroughly corrupted and wielded as a club that you would ask yourself the question, what on earth happened? Well, what happened is the people themselves have mm -hmm. abandoned the foundation upon which these documents were created mm -hmm. and the only grounds where they can work. And when you remove that foundation, mm -hmm. then you're left with something that has the potential to become completely evil. And so it's it's people. People are the weakness of capitalism in the same way that they're the yeah. weakness of every system, <laughs> unless you actually have a legitimate theocracy where God himself is on the throne. Other than that, which we're never going to see uh, this side of eternity, you'll always have people being the weakness to any system uh, as great as they are. The systems, I mean. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's why you ultimately need, as you, you talked about earlier in the program, Bruce, you need those those people who we vested with uh, that public power, that public in, interest like the courts to be zealous to guard against the, you know, the predilections of actors who are acting against individual rights and only in their self-interest. You talk about cabals and cartels and things like that. We need, that's, that's what I envision, you know, being a role of the state in the sense that they would be honoring those basic fundamental God-given rights that are pre-civic and they would be protecting people from that. And then they would ultimately be uh, enforcing contracts. Um, yeah. This Bruce, has been thank really you good. so Thanks, much for Bruce, giving was, us so much great. of your time. We, this is so fun to have this conversation. And I feel like maybe our society wouldn't be so far gone if these are the conversations we have on the regular. <laughs> the power of Agreed. just having, just talking through these issues is, is so very, I know I, this, this has mm -hmm. been a very clarifying yeah, just conversation. Some of the, me, the, um, the, the some of the legal yeah. cases historically, and even some of the the realities yeah. of the the charter and some of the specifics of it, I I know personally has been very enlightening, and I've I've learned mm -hmm. a, a couple new things about the history of our country, and in part why we're in the mess that we're in. But that's good. It's good to know. It's good to know why we're in the mess because it probably mm -hmm. helps you to clean it up or do what needs to be done moving forward. So Bruce, always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Can you tell people how they can get more from you? Yes. Yeah. Thank you for asking me that question. I um, uh, work with an organization called Rights Probe, as Andrew mentioned. And Rights Probe is a division of the Energy Probe Research Foundation. We have a website, rightsprobe.org. Our, our work is there. I mean, it appears in other places as well, but it's, it's, it's gathered there wherever it appears, wherever it appears. So rightsprobe.org, you can contact me at an email address on that on that uh, site, and they can follow me on Twitter at Hardy Bruce. Uh, I think you're going to be a regular, a regular uh, addition to the Liberty Dispatch. I quite enjoy <laughs> our conversations on air and off air. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think it's good. I think that a, a sober historical legal perspective uh, is is very much needed, and also to to really uh, to try to objectively look at what's going on in our country through the lens of clearly we see this growing managerial state, and how we're supposed to uh, respond to it is is even more essential because even as you were talking a little bit there, it seems that the problem is that people are either unwilling or unable to do their jobs. The courts, the legislature, like they mm -hmm. just, they have a job to do and they either don't want to do their job so they hand it off 
or they have a better job in mind and they want to do that one instead. But if everyone just did their job, it would be a much different situation. And the simple <laughs> fact that you're able to see that and recognize that and call it out for what it is, is helpful. So again, as long as you can stand us, uh, we're, we're going to keep having you on the dispatch because I think these conversations are not just enlightening, but uh, very fruitful and beneficial for our audience. So Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty Dispatch, a united front to restore liberty and justice in Canada. Please subscribe to our podcast and Rumble channel, as well as visit our website at www.LibertyCoalitionCanada.com.